Hey, this is Licia Naff, and I am Ensign Sonia Gomez from Star Trek The Next Generation, and I'm here with Matthew on Trek Untold. Hello and welcome to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. Today's guest is a very interesting one because this is a person who started in one career field and moved on to practically a brand new life in a whole other career that has probably defined her much more than her first one. Today, we're speaking with Licia Naff, who you may remember as Ensign Sonia Gomez from Star Trek The Next Generation, from a pair of episodes in Season 2, starting with Q-Who and following it up with The Samaritan Snare. Alicia's role as Ensign Gomez was a pretty memorable one for only two appearances, and despite it being so short-lived, has remained popular in other forms of Star Trek media, continuing on, in fact, into a whole book series based around her. But aside from being Ensign Gomez on Star Trek The Next Generation, you might also remember Alicia Naff as, well, there's no polite way to put this, but as the three-breasted mutant Mary from Total Recall. Yes, that is, in fact, the very same person, and she's got some stories to tell you guys about working on that set. In addition to Star Trek and Total Recall, you may have seen Licia pop up on Law & Order, Without a Trace, Father Dowling Mysteries, Max Headroom, Fame the Television Series, The Flash, The Jeffersons, Baywatch, and many more, along with one rather obscure film called Chopper Chicks in Zombie Town, which, of course, this being Trek Untold, you know I had to ask about that. But as I alluded to moments earlier, Licia eventually left Hollywood and began a new career as a journalist. And she is, in fact, the person who broke the story about the Bill Cosby sexual assault allegations. I hope that no matter what your opinion may be in regards to that story and the many stories that came out afterwards, but I hope you'll actively hear and listen to what Licia is saying today because there's a lot to this story and how it developed. We talk in great detail about this very huge moment in her life and her career and what that did to her. And not so much about whether or not that helped or hindered her career, but more so talk about what the aftermath was for her once that story broke and her name was out there and her name was out there attached to it. So we have a pretty in-depth discussion about this very life-altering moment in her career. So I want to warn you that the conversation is going to get a little heavy today. It's going to come in about the last third of this episode. So if this is something that you're uncomfortable hearing about, that's the part of the show that I recommend you just kind of fast forward a little bit on to get past it. Licia is a very open person, so this episode is pretty raw and very much uncensored. And it's also a bit of a departure from the way we normally do things here on Trek Untold. But I think the conversation we had is one of the most important ones we've ever had on this podcast. Licia has been through some very intense things, and her stories are unlike anyone else's we've ever heard on this show. So stay tuned, this is going to be a hell of a ride. But before we jump into today's interview, I want to ask you if you're following us yet on social media. If you're not, you can check out Trek Untold on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and we update there constantly. It's the best way to find out who this week's guest is going to be in advance, and also potentially ask them any questions when we offer that option. So that's Trek Untold, one word, no spaces, on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you'd like to help support the show, you can check out teespring.com stores slash Trek Untold to take a look at some of the merchandise we have there, which includes t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, stickers, and all sorts of other things. We'll be releasing new designs constantly, so make sure to keep an eye there if you'd like to support this show and show off to your friends how much you like it. You can also directly support this show by visiting patreon.com slash trekuntold to become a Patreon. 
But most important of all, please make sure to subscribe to this podcast. And if you're listening to it on iTunes, Spotify, Google, or any other audio forms, make sure to leave a review and a rating and drop some stars if you can. And if you're watching the YouTube version, please don't forget to subscribe to Nerd News Today, the channel that you're watching this on, and give the video a thumbs up. And of course, while you're at it, feel free to comment there and let me know what you think of this week's guest. Subscribing, leaving ratings, leaving comments are all some of the most important things you can do to help this podcast continue to grow and ensure that more people find out about this show. And if you're already following us or supporting us on Patreon or have bought some merch, a big, big thank you for doing that or offering your support in whatever way that you can. Thank you for the help. There's a lot of Star Trek podcasts out there, and I'm very grateful that you've chosen to listen to this one today. I'd also like to make a quick shout out to our sponsor at Triple Fiction Productions, who makes some amazing 3D printed Star Trek inspired dioramas and props for both Star Trek action figures and Star Trek fans in person. Whether you're a cosplayer or a toy collector, there's plenty of stuff to check out from Triple Fiction Productions, but you're going to hear a little bit more about them later on. Now, without further ado, let's beam up today's guest. Computer, access interview file. And welcome back to Trek Untold. And now joining me on the other side of the line, you may recognize her from Star Trek The Next Generation, but she's been in plenty of other productions that we're going to discuss today, some of which you may not even realize she was. Uh, and we also got some of the things that she's been working on the past few years that are pretty important, pretty interesting things. Uh, and that would be Alicia Naff. Alicia, how are you today? Oh my God. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> Good answer. I'll take it. <laughs> So yeah, thank you so much for joining us here. Uh, so first things first, I like to ask this question to all my guests, uh, and that's what's your earliest memory of Star Trek? Oh, it, probably, it had to be the very first one because I'm old um, and and just William Shatner and that big kind of big chest of his and the big voice. And um, Scott, I always, you know, coming in and saying, I've given her all I've got, you know, and I don't know just the old Star Trek. And it was really amazing to me that when I found out it only ran for such a short amount of time, you thought it was just this huge empire of, of episodes, but it was actually a very small amount compared to the, the new versions and the movies and stuff. It's pretty amazing. And it's, you know, Star Trek was one of the first shows to be syndicated and that's part of why it got so big and popular. So yeah, it is crazy. It's just only three seasons, but it's such an icon. Right, right. So uh, let's talk about some origins of Licia Naff here. Let's dive back a little bit. Uh, I'd like to know a bit about uh, where you grew up, who your parents were and what they did, and uh, what you wanted to be as a kid when you grew up. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was born and raised in Las Vegas, Nevada. And um, let's see, in the 70s, <laughs> um, I got a fake ID by the time I was 14. I was, you know, I had a car also. My parents kind of were busy and so they just gave my little brother and I what we needed to be on our own kind of we were latchkey kids but in a weird way that worked for me because I had a lot of freedom and I would go to discos and I, I was going to dance contests and my first love was dance because of the Carol Burnett show and the, all of the dancing and all the costume changes and I was just like that's what I want to be when I grow up I wasn't really even thinking of acting even though I did plays and movie shows and performances in the living room for my parents all the time and I would drag my little brother into fashion shows and dress him and throw him out there and I remember one time we were very young for the finale I made him go out there naked <laughs> like I was you know I don't know some like twisted Diane von Furstenberg or something um, so I was always performing but it was really just for my parents and then very early on at school Went to Catholic school my whole life, but my parents didn't care about, you know, Catholicism really. It was just Vegas and it was the better of the schools, I suppose. Um, 
my dad worked in the hotel business and I got a chance to see some of the theater that came through at the hotel he worked at. And one of them was your good man, Charlie Brown, and then Jesus Christ Superstar and then Hair. And I would bring those images in because I would see them a lot to my classmates and be director and producer and costume designer and prop master. And I would create these plays for all the kids at school. And once in a while, the teachers would get wind of this because we'd do it at lunch or after school. And we got to go from each grade performing it. And so that was kind of cool. I kind of, I don't know, I kind of peaked in elementary school to be honest. I really did. I was just, you know, I had nothing in my mind stopping me and it was just so much fun. So then, you know, growing up in Vegas and then once in a while coming to LA with my dad on vacation, it was like, I gotta be here, um, mainly because of the weather, not necessarily because of Hollywood. But when I got old enough and I started studying dance in, in high school, um, my dance teachers told me about dance teachers here in LA. And I talked my dad into letting me in my junior year for the summer study dance out here. And at the end of that summer, I asked the teacher, Jaime Rogers, if I could have a scholarship and then I, he said, yes. And I went to my parents and said, I've been offered a scholarship. Can I stay and finish high school out here? Because I can't go back to Vegas. Um, just Vegas is not necessarily the Vegas you see now with pyramids and roller coasters and all the craziness. It was just desert for us. It was just so boring, you know? There's nothing but like quaaludes and hot tubs and bad influences, to be quite frank. <laughs> you know? So I ended up being able to move out here and. By the time I graduated high school, I got a job on fame. Um, that, that's how old I am. I, I acted in the pilot, which got me my SAG card. And I was on the series as a dancer. And once in a while, if they had a dancer that had a, they needed to have a acting role for, they'd give it to me. And so I really enjoyed that for a couple of years. And then moved out of that to um, just acting full time because that was so much easier than dancing, to be quite frank. And that was that story. <laughs> so did you take any classes in between your time? Uh, once you basically got out there, uh, did you take any classes to improve your acting, your dance? Uh, did you go to school full-time for that? Or were you just working full-time at that point? Um, I was working quite a bit. I was lucky to, to work a lot, but I never stopped taking classes. And I did theater all the time. In fact, I was in the middle of a play when I got Star Trek The Next Generation. And um, my understudy had to go on a couple of times. Um, so that was just so fun. Doing theater really, I mean, if anyone ever wants to act, that's the way to go. Because when you're doing TV and film, it's it's very small little segments. It's it's out of uh, out of context a lot of times. They're doing, you're shooting the end at the beginning and there's no flow. And learning how to create a character and be on stage just gives you the training to be able to knock out anything. Um, so yeah, I was always in classes, Daryl Hickman for years and years and um, gosh, all kinds of different method techniques and stuff like that. But basically, you know, you have your bag of tricks and then you get on set and it's all that kind of goes out the window. You memorize your lines you, and then you get bossed around and you do what they tell you to do, you know. So one thing that was interesting, I was able to work for the 10 years that I worked um, before I moved out of acting. But in my day, starting in 1980, 81 through the very early 90s, ethnic was not in. So my entire career was the girlfriend, you know, the friend of the lead, the white lead. I was a hooker, prostitute with a heart of gold, maid, uh, runaway, drug addict constantly. 
um, I don't know, I did so many prostitutes. I was, you know, I don't smoke, but I was always smoking in scenes and wearing a lot of jewelry and makeup. And, oh, I, you know, one time I was on uh, General Hospital for a while. Was it General? No, it was Young and Restless. I had a recurring role in Young and Restless and I played the mafia's girlfriend. And then I had a recurring role in General Hospital where I played a runaway and then I got sky, I was the skyjacker's girlfriend. In those days, they didn't call it hijacking. They called it skyjacking. So it was always like whoever was dark, I could play, you know, which, which kind of was defeating in the end. So I wasn't able to kind of move up and do bigger roles and stuff like that. However, I probably should brag just a little bit. Can I, Matthew? No one really knows this. But I was nominated for an Emmy for best best performance in a TV movie, so I do have that. As I walked away from the business, um, I, I did have a little, you know, I got to go to the awards, and I was shocked when I wouldn't didn't win because I was a fucking narcissist at the time. Now I'm just, you know, an old fashioned housewife. But at the time, I was I really thought I was going to win. So I did have a fun career, but it was kind of limited, you know. And uh, can you just remind us what that Emmy nomination was for? Um, it was for um, best performance in a TV movie, um, and it was for um, a TV movie called The Perfect Date. I don't even know if you can even find it anymore. I, I actually did try to look for that one. I couldn't find it. You, oh, really? Yeah, yeah, I probably couldn't find it anymore. Yeah. I was beat out by a girl who, who was um, handicapped in a wheelchair, and she won. And I was like, she really was a handicapped person in a wheelchair. And I was like, darn, you just can't, you know, you can't beat nuns and handicapped people. They win all the time. <laughs> so you mentioned uh, fame. That was your first television gig, right? Yes. And so how was that experience? Because again, you're basically pretty much fresh into the industry at this point. And fame is a pretty big deal at the time for folks who don't know fame was first a movie, then became the TV series. Yeah. Uh, and that show was a pretty big deal. Uh, so what was it like to jump right into that? Um, it was kind of difficult for me personally. Um, I, I learned a lot. It was at the MGM studios. So, you know, driving to the set and parking your car and walking, you know, to these gigantic sound stages, that experience just made one tingle. It's like, oh my gosh, I'm part of, you know, this history, Hollywood, old Hollywood. And it was just you know, it, amazing. It really was amazing. Um, we got to wear Bob Mackie outfits all the time and um, it was a little difficult. Um, Debbie Allen um, um, was a taskmaster. Um, she brought in her dance company from uh, West Side Story from New York to, to fill in. Uh, I was the only one who was hired out here from LA and the rest of them came out from New York. And they were tough, tough ass dancers and they all knew each other. And I was pretty much the black sheep. And so I was, I was kind of, I was very intimidated. I felt very small at the time. I didn't have a, I had zero self-esteem. Um, what was nice is that the actors though, the lead actors, especially when I would get um, guest star roles were so humble and nice and they were normal and really, really nice, nice people. But the dancers were, you know, all up and this thing. And, and Debbie Allen was very, <laughs> she was a real cunt to be honest. You know, what the fuck? I'm not in the business anymore. And she was a horrible, horrible person. She really, really, took advantage of her power and she was a narcissist and very, very controlling and shaming. She, her, she was really big into shaming people. And so I, it was a rough time. Um, I left, I quit. Um, what happened was 
Flashdance was looking for the Jennifer Beals. But before Jennifer Beals even came onto the scene, they were the producers and the director, Adrian Lyon, were shadowing me and they asked if they could watch me uh, in, in dance rehearsals over at M MGM. And Debbie Allen hated that for some reason because the star was off of her for two seconds. And they, you know, watched me rehearse and shoot and then took me to parties. And I was like, oh my God, I couldn't believe it. Um, it was really quite, <clears throat> quite an adventure, you know? They, they took how I would cut my shirts, like, you know, and undress and take off my bra underneath the, the sweatshirts and all of the behavior of a dancer, you know, they were studying me. And when it came to the final, final screen test, Debbie Allen wouldn't let me go. She wanted, and we were just being extras on the set that day. When dancers weren't rehearsing or shooting, we had to <clears throat> fill in at, in the um, classroom. And um, she wouldn't let me go. And it was like, this is my big break. It was, it was devastating. Um, so uh, I went anyway. And it was all, way, all the way up in Paramount, I think it was. And I met Jerry Bruckheimer in the elevator and I'm like, oh my God, I mean, I could barely breathe. Um, and I, you know, to be honest, I choked at the audition. I, they had me eat crackers because it was a meal scene and we're eating lobster, but they had me eat dried crackers and my mouth was dry and I'm trying to talk to the lead actor. I forgot his name, he's very famous. And I, it, it just had a mouthful of crackers. <laughs> just, I didn't feel very good about my performance and obviously I didn't get it. Um, but when I saw the movie, it was like, that's, I mean, so much of, of what they saw me do and hanging around me constantly, like for a month, was in that film, you know, all of my behaviors and my mannerisms and the way <clears throat> a dancer my age acted. And she even looked a lot like me, like the hair and the clothes and all that stuff. So anyway, that day I came to the set after I auditioned and I walked into her trailer and I was going to quit. Um, and she said, she, she, uh, she said, oh, good, I need to talk to you. And I go, great, I need to talk to you too. And I'll never forget it. It was like this standoff where she, which, which she said, you're fired. And I said, well, I'm, I was in tears and shaking because she's very intimidating. She says, well, I'm firing you. And I was like, that's fine. And she marched me like a little kid into onto the set where the dancers were rehearsing. And she said, do you want to tell the dance company what's going on and I was I was like I've quit what am I even doing here I don't I, I was so intimidated so she said you know Lisa's going to be taking a break from us and maybe if she's learned her lesson she can come back in two weeks and I was like I was like in my head I'm never coming back I mean never I mean this is she was so horrible to me and I left just like dazed and confused by being so power tripped, but that was a you know a really good beginning on how Hollywood is. Um, you know, there are those who start moving up the, the 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 scale, and they take it they take it to heart, and they 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 think they you know they lose a sense of humanity. I suppose I don't know if Debbie Evelyn ever did have any humanity. She, from what I hear, she's exactly the same and she can call me. <laughs> I want this to go everywhere. She was really, really a terrible, terrible influence, terrible person. Um, 
but it made me stronger. I left, I didn't have a job, but boom, I just started to work constantly. I, I got my equity card. I started to do leads in, in equity theater. I got soaps and then I just, you know, started to do one TV show after another. I got Clan of the Cave Bear, which was really fun. I got to go up to uh, Vancouver and the Northwest Tundra Territory. That was a six month gig. Yeah, I was going to actually ask you about Clan of the Cave Bear because that was with Daryl Hannah. And I'm hoping it sounds like it was a better experience for you as well. Um, oh and that was also God. like the first time doing prosthetics, right? Yeah, yeah. And then I, I became known for doing prosthetics because if you can tolerate doing, you know, the, we had a two-month rehearsal. This kind of thing doesn't happen anymore. There was a two-month paid rehearsal and a four-month shoot. It was insane. And we had brow ridges and fake teeth and we had to put these nose extenders in. And they made us not shave. And I'm half Lebanese and half Brazilian. So I became very hairy very quickly. <laughs> it, was, it was the best. That was one of the best experiences of my life. It was so much fun. It was a, a 90 degree turn. Um, it was great. I feel like this is another film that you did that no one ever asks you about. Uh, but I know it's come up a few times. That's Chopper Chicks and Zombie Town. Oh, right. And, and yes, I did watch it for my research. I sat through the entire oh, film. <laughs> You poor thing. I mean, it was it was a B film, and I don't mind B films. You know, nowadays they call them independent films, but it wasn't it wasn't funny enough, scary enough, zombie enough. It was just it was a bad film. I mean, it was, I it was ninety minutes. That's my review of it. It's ninety really? minutes. <laughs> oh, thank God. I mean, they they call it a cult classic, but it wasn't. But you know what it did? It taught me how to ride motorcycles, and I ride motorcycles to this day. I've never ever stopped riding road my, riding motorcycles. I've got a fat boy, custom fat boy, and you know I'm all of five two. And whenever it's warm out, I'm now a fair weather biker. If it drops before seventy, you're not going to see me out there. <laughs> but you know, for decades now, I've been riding motorcycles. Some of the fun things I know about that film is it get, got Billy Bob Thornton his SAG card. It was his first acting job. He'd already sold and won an Oscar for Sling Blade. Um, but apparently he needed his SAG card. So he played a husband of one of the biker chicks and he was a wife beater. And, you know, I never got to meet him because I wasn't in those scenes, but I found that kind of hysterical. Um, we shot it out in Ridgecrest, California, and we all learned to ride motorcycles. And that was another uh, awesome, awesome experience, even though the movie was kind of silly. It was about, you know, a female biker gang who drives into this, you know, desert town that's being taken over by zombies. And we decide to kill the zombies. And my weapon was a, I think it was a staple gun. I forgot. I mean, everyone had a weapon and I had, you know, it's just some stupid weapon. Like I killed them with staple guns or something. Um, I barely remember actually shooting the movie. I just remember motorcycle riding because that became my life. I just, it gave me so much freedom. It was like, to be quite frank, Matthew, it was like, this feels, when I ride a motorcycle, it feels like this is why I'm alive. This is why I'm on planet Earth. That and really good sex, you know, is the only two things that put me in that place of, oh, that's why I'm a human being, you know? I mean, other than being spiritual and all that and being a good person. So I'm a, I'm a motorcycle fanatic. Um, none of the other girls ride. Um, I bought my motorcycle from um, the movie. And basically I turned over my entire salary, literally back to them and got the bike. Then I just 
customized it and then upgraded and upgraded and upgraded. They've always been Harleys for some reason. Maybe that's because it was the first bike I, you know, got. Um, so that's that story. Chopper Chicks in Zombie Town. I mean, it's you want to torture yourself and watch a bad B movie, but it is, you know, hot chicks on bikes and Chrome Hearts is a really big um, uh, fashion line and jewelry line. They did all of our. Um, in fact, the movie was called Chrome Hearts, but at the last minute they they changed it to Chopper Chicks in Zombie Town. But Chrome Hearts made our jackets and our jewelry and and you know that whole image, that whole hot biker image with chains and crosses and all that kind of stuff. I became. I wasn't really a method actor but whatever role I did I kind of walked away still being that person because I was very young and didn't really have a good sense of identity of myself so for for you know whenever movie I leave I'm still that character for a while and it sounds like you're still basically that character because you still got the bike maybe you, pro- you probably still have a staple gun somewhere right so you might still I, be here I do I do Trek Untold will return momentarily Trek Untold is brought to you by Triple Fiction Productions. If you're a Star Trek cosplayer looking for props, or a toy collector looking to spice up your shelves, Triple Fiction Productions has you covered. Triple Fiction Productions produces affordable and unique 3D printed Trek-inspired products from the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and the movies. You can expect the same amount of care and attention to detail in any of the items in their catalog whether it's a prop replica for use in a fan film, or a part of a cosplay, or accessories and playsets for figures from Playmates, Migos, or Diamond Select. Own your very own tricorder or phaser rifle with working lights, the bridge of the Enterprise E for your Playmates figures, or any other item from countless species and ships from the Star Trek universe. All products are 3D printed in the USA and are constantly evolving and improving based on fan feedback. To learn more about their products, visit them at triple-fictionproductions.net or on Facebook at facebook.com slash triplefictionproductions. Triple Fiction Productions, taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before. Hello, everyone. I'm Armin Shimmerman. Perhaps you know me better as Quark from Deep Space Nine. As your favorite Ferengi, I'm here to promote a sale. It's not self-sealing stem bolts, but my new novel. Illyria. And the first book is called The Betrayal of Angels. Some of you may not know that aside from being an actor, I'm also a novelist. My newest novel is a mystery set in 1583. Its heroes are the historical characters of John Dee, who was a spiritualist, a book collector, and a spy. With him is an unsuccessful playwright named William Shakespeare. Their mission is to investigate a nobleman who happens to be Count Orsino from Shakespeare's Twelfth Night. The book employs comedy, history, and fantasy to tell a page-turner of a story. The Adventure is a trilogy, and the first book goes on sale November 5th, which happens to be my birthday. It reads a lot like Sherlock Holmes, or like one of my favorite shows, Homeland. Please check out my website, at www.armandshimmerman, get the name right, .com, or you can get it directly from my publisher at www.jumpmasterpress.com. You can buy it either as a paperback, a hardback, or an ebook. So why don't you check it out and judge for yourself? Or better yet, give it as a gift to someone. I know they'll appreciate it. 
Disclaimer, no Latinum except. We now return to Trek Untold. All right, so Alicia, let's jump into Star Trek The Next Generation uh, because you came forward to play Ensign Sonia Gomez. Uh, your first appearance was in Q Who. So let's just kick things off first by how did you get the role of Ensign Gomez? Oh my gosh, okay. Well, I was um, doing a play. I had a lead in a play at the time over at the Zephyr Theater and um, we were already... Uh, we were already in the run. When I'm doing a play, when you, when anyone is doing a play, I would imagine if there's any, you know, actors out there, your chops, your your acting chops, your fluids are really going, and you don't have a lot of stage fright. It's just you you're in the zone of of what the craft of acting is. So I was I went over it was just, it was a Paramount again. Yeah, it was a Paramount, and um, there's you know. It was a long casting call. Um, there was tons of girls in the waiting room. Um, her, the character was Jewish at first. They called her Ensign Sonia Sussman. So they were, I don't know, for some reason, uh, she was Jewish. Uh, so I, you know, there's a whole bunch of girls who looked exactly like me and I was the very last one to audition. And I remember in one of my acting classes, uh, the Meisner method, it was, I was studying at the time, it was like, the longer they make me wait, the better I'm going to be. So I just kept saying that in my head, because usually you just get nervous and don't know when you're going to get called. I was the very, very last one. And I walked in there and I, I don't know, I just was so focused and I went for it. And it was just for the casting director, but she was so well known at the time. I wish I remember her name, very famous casting director that you booked right off of her recommendation. Um, she, she found Niles from, um, the, the character of Niles and Frasier from the same situation. She just had this eye for finding talent. And so producers didn't have to come in and see you. So she just suggested me and boom. Now here's the deal for those Trekkies. I'll tell you some, some inside info. So, you know, the canon, I mean, it's like the Bible, um, there really is an Ensign Sonia, and maybe her name is Gomez. I'm not 100% sure. But her, it's written that she becomes Jordy's love interest, that Jordy falls in love with this Ensign so much that he's willing to do this life-changing surgery and possibly, you know, fatal surgery to remove his glasses so he can see because he falls in love with me so much. Problem was, um, it was at the very end of the season, we were the, shooting the last two episodes is when they brought me in, the two episodes of uh, my character, they made her kind of a comic relief. Uh, or maybe I just evolved it into being that because I, I tend to you know, have a funny bone in my nature, but it was written that light, like that. I was kind of like a bumbling, young, wide-eyed, you know, starstruck kind of, and I, you know, just looked up to Jordy as a mentor. And so what happened is over hiatus, you know, the producers decided not to bring me back as a regular role because they thought Jordy would never fall in love with somebody like me. And they were right. I mean, you know, the way they shot it, the way they edited it, the way they wrote it, when I look at it, Jordy's not gonna fall in love with someone who seemed so young and so wide-eyed and so goofy you know, kind of just not really 
sophisticated enough for him to want to do a fatal surgery to remove these glass, you know, to give him sight. So it turned out that they never found, they never did evolve any character like that. He played the rest of, from what I recall, am I right, Matthew? He never took the, he was always blind, right? Well, the visor kind of sort of came off in the movies. Um, so oh, that was it right. briefly. But yeah, but other than that, I mean, yeah, for the rest of the actual TV series, the visor was always on. Yeah, yeah. And what was really fun is working with LeVar Burton. Oh my gosh. Um, they were shooting a Mission Impossible at the time. So Tom Cruise had security everywhere and, you know, lots of sound stages were blocked off. And I'm like, what's going on? And I was like, oh, it's Tom Cruise. But I walked to LeVar uh, Burton's, um, wasn't really a trailer. It was more of like a suite that was on the, you know, like an apartment because he shot there so much. And it was done like this new age Bodhi tree spiritual. It had incense burning and candles and drapes. And we sat on pillows across from each other and ran lines. And I was like, wow, this guy is so spiritual. And, and he was the real deal. You know, we rehearsed with, you know, looking at each other and he's so connecting. He's such a good actor, my God, you know. Um, I'm looking into his eyes and they're watery and so loving. And then I forgot when we started to shoot that he put that on and all of that connection that actors love to have was gone. Um, you know, I worked with it anyway, but it was kind of, oh yeah, he's gonna be like that. And the other thing is the guy who um, is covered in gold, Data. Data, okay, the Android Data, yeah, Brent Spiner. Yeah, first of all, all of those actors, by the way, are so sweet. I mean, so sweet. They, you know, said, what's your name? And they got to know me and there was no like star tripping. Nobody had a star trip thing going on. I mean, except maybe Captain Picard, but that was because he was, that was his character, you know, but Offset, he was really, really nice. You, oh, I'll tell you another Star Trek secret. <laughs> well, you guys might, you know, already know this. So, you know how all the men look like they're built, like they've, you know, none of them have, have physiques whatsoever. They're all got scrawny shoulders or pot bellies or they're thin or they're fat. That's built into their costume. So it looks like, you know, I, I, when, I, when I met uh, Patrick Stewart, he, you know, he, he, he just looks like a thin British guy, you know, and then you, he's got the outfit on. It looks like, you know, he works out every day and all of the characters are like that. In real life, they're, you know, just are normal physical human beings, but the outfits. And the other thing is they're hyper crazy about your hair and your outfit. Each actor has two people studying them and walking around with them at all times. One is to make sure there's not one wrinkle. They're pulling things down and tucking things in and making things look smooth. It has to look perfect. And oh, here's something that happened. Between episode one and two, oh, they did reshoots on episode two, but they had wrapped the season and I called the producer's room and said, look, I'm thinking of cutting my hair and they were fine. But two weeks later, they needed me to come back for a reshoot. My, I had cut my hair and they went ballistic for some reason. You know, people, you know, sets the... People are under a lot of stress. So there's a lot of high strung emotions and they were extremely upset that I cut my hair. So very quickly, um, Michael Westmore, who's a very, very famous um, makeup artist and he did Clown of the Cave Baron. He comes from that Westmore family. He got hair extensions and they made sure that I matched. But prior to that, one day we were shooting um, episode, before episode two, the, um, 
it was just about to start episode two. They put me in one of those golf carts and I'm driven to the producers and writers room. And I'm like, Shh. they didn't tell me why. I didn't know what was going on. I could tell that it wasn't good. And I was like, I was really scared. <laughs> Just like, am I going to get fired? I mean, what's going on? You know, this was, again, I was just star-eyed. I was thinking this could be my big break, blah, 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 blah. So I go into this, you know, room and it's one of those big conference tables. And honestly, there's maybe 16 to 20 people in there. And they had some big TV sets and monitors and they ran some of the daily, some of the footage from the first episode and they would freeze frame on it. And they would go, you see that? You see that? You see that? And you know what they were pointing at? Flyaways in my hair. And I had a shag haircut. At the time I didn't have Star Trek hair. And what they came to show me, I don't know why they were showing me. I don't know why I was involved. <laughs> They brought in the talent and not the, you know, hairdressing team, but maybe the hairdressing team was in there. I don't remember. I was just so afraid and scared, but basically it had nothing to do with my acting. You know, it had all to do, and my hair looks pretty much the same as it did then. Just lots and lots of layers. But I don't think look, Lisa Neff has ever had a bad hair day in anything I've seen her in. Oh, you're sweet. <laughs> But come, my God, you know, so they had to make it helmet hairish and someone was following me all the time, moving my hair and straightening my hair. And, you know, it's very, very rigid, making sure the thing is here and that's here. Oh, another thing is the very first day, the very first scene, the very first moments, I'm just in engineering. And what it is, it's, it's fake, really. You have to pretend to push buttons and they light up and stuff, but it's just really a wall of nothing. So I'm like, I'm you know, moving around and shoot and touching stuff. And they, they stop everything. And there's a, there's a conversation. I, they the Star Trek was intense on the set, even though the actors were nice, but it was a lot of drama. Uh, and they come to me and they usher me away to the wardrobe, uh, wardrobe area. And I knew it, it wasn't me, that I didn't do something wrong. I mean, you're always thinking, screwing up. I was an A cup at the time. So they made me a B cup. And then they went, took me out there. And then they made me a C cup. And they took me out there to look uh, on camera. And then they made me a D cup. My boobs, you can't really see it. My boobs were like out here. You couldn't really see in the outfit because it smashed it down. But they made me this gigantic D cup just so it would read that I had boobs in the outfit. <laughs> so I found that pretty fascinating. There was more direction and time by far given to hair, makeup, and wardrobe than any direction for acting or no one ever given me acting direction at all. It was just, thank you. That was great. Cut next. It's pretty hysterical. I can tell you that you're not the only person who have talked about having boob issues on Star Trek, actually. So oh, you're not alone in that. Yeah. Oh, good. That's good to know. But on that same token, I'm actually curious, you know, we've talked to a lot of uh, actors, actresses who are on the Trek shows in the Starfleet uniforms, and they've had differing opinions on how it felt to actually wear the uniform. Uh, and granted, in your case here, you had to wear that with chest prosthetics, essentially. But uh, what do you remember about wearing the uniform? Was it comfortable for you? Was it distracting? Did it get in the way at all? Um, well, the fitting took an entire week. They, I mean, they pin and they make it exactly to your specifications. And it's um, it's kind of this elastic material. Um, so it's a little stretchy. It wasn't that uncomfortable, 
but so that it wouldn't have even one wrinkle in it. it there was stirrups underneath uh, the pants that always had to be pushed down and kind of under your shoes or under your socks so that you always had these really streamlined. Um, that's one thing I remember. But other, other than that, you know, when I go back and I look at those episodes or once in a while I'll see a clip, I was like, you know, I just all I can think of is how big they tried to make my boobs look and it didn't even read. It looked like I was just, you know, normal. I did want to ask you a little bit more about uh, Patrick Stewart also, because your scene, your first scene with him is you're spilling hot cocoa all over him. And I imagine just in the first place, being in a room with Patrick Stewart is intimidating. Having to now spill hot cocoa on him is probably even more frightening for a young actor. Uh, what can you tell us about doing that scene with Patrick Stewart? And again, just you got to spill stuff on him. That's crazy. That sounds well, like a horrible thing to do. It sounds like a nightmare to me personally in real life. Right. There was only one rehearsal in which I didn't spill anything. And then they, they could only do two takes. So they had two cameras rolling on each two takes because they only had two changes of outfit from Patrick. Or maybe that's all Patrick wanted to do. Um, so I had to nail it. So, which helped because I had to be nervous in the scene, you know, my captain, your captain, my ship, your ship. I had to be kind of, you know, bumbling like that. So um, we, we just did it twice. Um, and he didn't want to talk to me. He, he didn't want to be friends with me. He wanted to keep that kind of intimidating aspect so that the, the roles would look right when we shot it. He didn't want to be my friend off camera and then, you know, be intimidating on camera. So it was very fun. It was, it was really great. After that, years later, I saw him in a play and I went backstage afterwards and he was just the sweetest guy. He was just completely not that. He has such a sense of humor about himself. I wish he'd host Saturday Night Live because he's hysterical. So it was really fun working with him. So aside from Pat, Sir Patrick Stewart and everybody else we mentioned, you also were in an episode of Whoopi Goldberg. And I don't know if you got to actually interact with her at all, but uh, did you actually get to chat with her or spend some time with her offset? Yes. Oh my gosh. She was so nice again. And I got, um, those were the days of the Polaroid. So I got a Polaroid picture of her and I in our outfits together that I gave to my boyfriend at the time when he was traveling to remember me by, and then he went and lost it. It was like, that was my only piece of memorabilia. I broke up with him after that, so don't worry. Um, but yeah, she was super, super sweet. Um, gosh, the, the environment after, you know, action and cut was just so wonderful. I mean, they, they'd all worked together for a long time. They were all friends. Everybody was just very familiar and kind. There was no ego tripping. Uh, it was really a really, 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 really a delight. Now, I've gone to some of the Star Trek conventions to do signings and stuff. And none of them go, which is unfortunate because they're too, they don't, maybe they're too big or once in a while they'll make an appearance um, on stage and do those round tables on the stage and stuff. Um, but they're, they're in real life, gosh, my gosh, there's not a complaint, not a one of them. Um, the thing about data I was going to say is we were eating lunch one time just outside of the set, just like sitting on one of the streets on, on the Paramount lot. And you can't really realize because it didn't shoot well. The color of gold that they cover him in is so gold and so bright and gorgeous. And it didn't quite translate as well because they didn't have HD or high def back then. Um, but he had to live in that gold all the time. I mean, you know, it's not, he came in at five in the morning, got covered in gold and then, you know, wrapped 12 hours later, you know, still covered in gold. It's not like he could take it on and off. And he didn't mind it at all. 
you know. So the first episode that you were in, again, Q Who, uh, for Trekkies out there, we all know that as the debut of the Borg. And that's pretty much the biggest threat in Star Trek history at that time. And they're still pretty darn scary. Um, did you ever see them on set? Again, this is probably the first time you probably have seen them. Did you ever see them at all when you were there filming? No, I just, but I did see their, their prosthetics and their heads and all, all of that stuff in the makeup room. I mean, it's no surprise uh, Michael Westmore was asked to do, you know, Star Trek because he, he was such a specialist at that kind of stuff. Um, so no, I didn't really, you know, have any interactions with the Borgs. Sorry. Except seeing them, you know, at the cafeteria. <laughs> That's got to be a weird thing to see a bunch of Borg eating soup and salad, right? Yeah, along with all the Mission Impossible people. It was, you know... Whenever you're working on a big set like that or big sound stage like MGM or, or Paramount, you know, the mixture of people, you've got a cowboy next to a little person, next to a nun, next to, you know, a Borg, you know, next to a gangster, you know, and you're all in, in the line to get soup. It's kind of funny. So aside from the appearances on Next Gen, which were sadly only two episodes, uh, your character does continue on in books and other media. Uh, are you familiar with what Sen uh, Sonia Gomez has done since her TV appearances? You know, no, actually, no. I, I, I didn't, didn't really follow up uh, just because my, my little heart was broken. I just, like, I, I felt sad that I wasn't continued, so I didn't kind of pursue it out, outside of, of the professional aspect of it. What happens to her? Well, she does a heck of a lot more stuff. I haven't read all the books myself, but I know that she does rise up in the ranks. Uh, there's basically a whole book series more or less devoted to her and her team. Uh, so, so she actually did pretty well for herself. So it's unfortunate again that, that uh, Sonia Gomez didn't keep up in the next gen show. And uh, I'm kind of curious, you know, we, we know what was supposed to happen in theory, but what would you have liked to have happened to Sonia Gomez? Probably what, what would have ever been in that on those books in the canon, because I, I know that the producers and Gene Roddenberry was on the set a lot, and I actually got in that Polaroid with him that I still have. So he was alive, and he really wanted to hold true to, to the written word. And so a lot of the scripts were very, very close to what, what was written in all of the books in the canon. Um, personally, what I would have liked to do is come back that following season which would have started up in August or September of that following year and you know learned my craft as an ensign and and maybe excel like they had written about it and gosh to become a love interest of Jordy to have those kinds of scenes to be able to have worked with Jordy more would have just been a, a dream come true I mean honestly I would do it for free uh but you know say la vie yeah, working with LeVar Burton, I know, must be really great. Uh, I do feel like, as far as Ensign Gomez goes, she probably dodged a bullet because Jordy LaForge was kind of a creep with the ladies, it seemed like, later on. So uh, he was a little bit, uh, yeah, not, not too great with the ladies. Oh, I didn't know that. In the series? Yeah, he has uh, another love interest later on that's uh, actually a hologram in the beginning. It's uh, Dr. Leah Brahms. And at first we meet her, she's a hologram. And then the actual doctor, a few episodes later, comes and they actually meet in person. It's awkward. Uh, you know, Jordy's not the best with the ladies. That's hysterical. I mean, that man can play anything. Uh, he's got such a range. So I heard a story, and maybe you could help let us know if this is true or not. Now we're going to jump into Total Recall a little bit. But sure. I heard that uh, it was your appearance on Total Recall that also may have actually hindered your continuing in Star Trek Next Generation. Is there any truth to that? 
Oh, no, because they were, that was a couple of years later from what I recall. I mean, maybe that's true. I mean, honestly. I've just heard rumors. So yeah, I want to get to the bottom of that. But I know there's other things going on, obviously, that you mentioned already with uh, with the character. So, you know, I don't, I don't know. I'm not privy to that. I, honestly, I'm not privy to that. I was also told that, that um, my role didn't continue on because my agents didn't accept a deal and they never told me about it. I was told that a couple of times that, that I, I was offered, um, which all of that is just heartbreaking, you know? I mean, for someone who was young like I was and who was really dedicated to the craft of acting and just loved it and worked very, very, very hard and would have done anything they asked me to do to, to find out something like, you know, it was my agents who didn't accept a deal that I didn't even know about. You know, maybe they would were offering SAG minimum. I would have taken it. Are you kidding? But that I, I still don't have any evidence. The thing is, Star Trek, those episodes were shot in 85 or 86. And Total Recall was 87, 88. So I don't know uh, if they influenced each other. Um, but um, I got the role. Um, kind of sight unseen because Jan DeBont was the, the DP, the cinematographer on Clan of the Cave Bear. And I guess he remembered me. They needed somebody um, who knew how to wear prosthetics and didn't complain about it. <laughs> um, so I was the only one to audition and I, all, I just went in and, and met with him and chatted with him. And he told me what it was that I have to go um, to Azusa and work with a very Rick Baker, very famous, um, you know, guy who makes horror stuff like, you know, monsters and stuff and work it out. Originally, she was to have four boobs. Yeah, we should mention for, for folks who don't know, because there's probably some people who might not recognize you just yet. And they're hearing four boobs. OMG. Oh, but Oh, I um. was. The, um, <laughs> my name was Mary in in Total Recall. If you went to get popcorn, you'd miss me. But I was a very. Um, a role that you wouldn't forget. I was a three-breasted mutant hooker on Mars um, who opened up her shirt and should have said, got milk. <laughs> I, don't even, I don't even remember the lines. There were so few. But uh, originally, um, there was probably two to three weeks of, of creating that prosthetic piece. And it started at my neck and they blended in with my neck and it went all the way down below my belly. It was an entire so that it looked like natural boobs when I would open up my shirt. But originally there were four boobs and I looked like a cow. It was like one, two, three, four. It was like, you know, it was too mammalian. This way too mammalian, you know, they a good word. I, I need to use mammalian in more sentences. <laughs> I know it makes me feel, it makes me feel like I'm smart. Um, yeah, it's like it's just too much lactose going on. It was not right. It was just, it didn't, it didn't look sexy i guess it was i was supposed to be a mutant prostitute but they had to be some sex appeal like if two boobs are good three boobs are better that's i guess you know so they stuck one in the middle and one of the things i'm always asked is were the you know were any of them yours you know and i was like no and the, you know i always say yeah um the, the middle one was mine <laughs> the, the other two were in a jar and formaldehyde on my desk but no, none of the boobs were mine. They were all three prosthetics um, and they had several of them painted perfectly. And it was that spongy stuff they make it of. It almost feels like skin. And it, it takes about, it started um, initially to be like eight hours in the makeup chair and they put you in like a barber chair and lean you back. 
And then it got down to about five and a half hours, five hours. I just got faster and faster at it because they'd have to glue it on and then make it look like there's not a seam and blend in all the makeup and then put it all in. And, you know, we shot in Mexico City and I had a walk. Those were Walkman days. I would, I was the first one on the set, 5 a.m., you know, plug in the Walkman, go to sleep and just let them work at me. And that was weird. Now here's, here's a little something. So the first day on the set, it was just a week of shooting. I just like five, six days. Um, uh, I meet, um, I, I, I arrive on the set with my outfit on and I'm a prostitute as usual. I mean, if I, I probably played 10 prostitutes in my career. Uh, um, yeah, it was ethnic, you know, was in, you know, ethnic was not in to play leads, unfortunately, but I already went through that. So I'm standing on the set watching Jan de Bont direct Arnold and Arnold was like a robot. He took, he imitated everything Jan told him to do. Jan would give him a line reading, meaning a way to say a line, like, hello, how are you, how are you today? And Arnold Schwarzenegger would go, hello, how are you today? He would do it exactly the way he was asked. And I was like, wow. Uh, you know, as an actor, you're kind of not used to that. You're, you're used to actors doing many takes, trying it many ways, you know, being artsy, you know, but Arnold was all business and I liked that. He was super, super professional. So then when they were lighting our scene at the, at the bar, you know, I'm sitting across from him. I looked into his eyes and we didn't talk much. Um, he didn't talk much to me. Um, he is kind of a big guy and he was very buff at the time, right? He still is in his, you know, Arnold days. And one thing that I really noticed that I'll never, ever, 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 ever forget, I'm looking at his eyes and his pupils were the size of a tiny little pin. And I was like, that is so weird. I just kept looking at his, you know, he's got beautiful blue eyes, but the pupils were not normal pupils. They were tiny. And later I find out that that's like a result of steroids. I didn't know that. The other thing is because, you, you know, the shoot was so long, they took out they took over this entire soundstage in, in Mexico City, and there were three units running the whole time, the A unit, B unit, and C unit. The B and C unit were running, you know, all of the stunts and all of the special effects. And one of the buildings was completely taken over for him. On the bottom floor was this huge gym where he'd work out with, with the stunt coordinator and other people. And then the upstairs was where he lived. And Maria Shriver, his wife, was there at the time for the first couple of days and I got to see her, but she left. And one of the, I don't know if it was, a, yeah, I was a stuntman. I'm walking to the set for, maybe it was the first or second day. And he goes, be careful of Arnold, you know, you know, anything 14 and a half years and, you know, and younger is, you know, be careful. And I was like, what does that mean? You know, I always remember, cause he said 14 and a half years, basically Arnold was, he was, uh, you know, he was a naughty boy at the time. And when he ran for governor, he actually admitted it. You know, in the 80s and 90s, it was par for the course, you know, cocaine and women. And, and what I thought helped getting him elected is he didn't deny it. He didn't try to hide it like a Bill Clinton. He just went, yeah, you know, was boys, I was a bad boy. Boys will be boys. And he was. He was a bit of a pickup artist. And there was tons and tons of Mexican girls who were extra, extras you know, from Mexico living there. 
who they glamorized to be beautiful in, in a lot of the bar scenes like that. And never hit on me, but um, I was told to beware. <laughs> so that's a little bit of a inside scoop. So I'd heard some horror stories about you filming there as well, aside from the Arnold stuff. because I did actually read the article you wrote uh, about your time on that set, in fact. Um, but I heard some other stories. Maybe we could spend a little bit of time on that. Uh, I'd heard you had a really rough day. Um, trying to find the best way to put it, but you had a rather explosive day on one of the sets on Total Recall. You know, it's it's Mexico and it's Montezuma's Revenge. And uh, I avoided getting, um, you know, Montezuma's Revenge diarrhea for the entire time I was there. We stayed at a beautiful five-star hotel. You don't open your mouth when you're in the shower. You only drink bottled water. You don't eat lettuce. You know, you eat things that are completely cooked. I lived on like candy bars and cigarettes in those days. But that morning, it was, it was the last day of shooting for me, the second to the last day of shooting, the big scene. And I'd ordered oatmeal with milk and I'd you know, gotten in the makeup chair and got makeup on and then around, that was around 5 a.m., around 11 a.m. I go to my, my trailer and I eat some of my oatmeal and too late. Whatever happened, whatever happened, how that oatmeal was made, or maybe it just went sour, bang. So I definitely had the runs. So these were all of my close-ups. It's the scene where, where Arnold and I are right there together, and I had to have the trots. So the minute they said, cut, I would run off and explode, and then I'd come back and think, oh, gosh, it's over. And then I'd mourn. I'm like, where's, I don't even eat that much. Where's, how come all so much is coming out of me? It was, it was Terrible, terrible. It was something you don't wish, but you know, I'm a professional actor. All right, so here's another, here's another um, story um, from Total Recall. Now, Jan DeBont didn't show me a script. I didn't, you know, I never saw a script until the day I got onto the set. And there weren't that many lines, so it wasn't that big of a deal. But what I kind of didn't register was that I was gonna open my blouse and be naked and expose myself. Now, granted, it's a prosthetic. And granted, the blouse was kind of see-through anyway. But when I got to the set to do it, I felt, cause I'm nuts, you know, I was 25. I felt like I was exposing myself and I got, I got completely clammed up. I got so shy. And I, I, I ran up to Jan and I said, I can't do this. Is there any way, you know, I can just, you know, modify that and just a little peek. And he, he said, no, he said, I'll, pro I promise you a role in my next film. If you do this, he said that I, I got so into my character because of all the time wearing those prosthetic, I kind of, st you started to own those boobs. I started to feel like they were part of my body. And when Jan insisted that I open my blouse and do it, you promised me that if I do it, cause I was I begged him begged him and begged him not to make me do that to maybe just do like this or like this or something but not open it up all the way and have my nipples hanging out and the whole thing it didn't register in my tiny little mind that that was always the plan you know I was just so excited to get another role to you know act and he said if you do it I'm, I'll trust me calm down breathe he was really cool you know he had this accent just relax. I'm going to give you a role in my next film. He kind of whispered in my ear, if you just kind of just do this, it's not that big of a deal. And I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
he never did give me another role. Um, but I, kn I know where he lives. So I might one day go knock on the door and go, he's still in the business. I know I'm a grandma now, but uh, you know, anything. So I did, I ended up having to do it. And you, 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 you might not even see it, even if you look up very close, I have tears in my eyes because I, I got embarrassed. I'm a hooker, I'm a mutant hooker. I should know that the way a mutant hooker on Mars in a bar makes money is by opening up her blouse and showing her wares. That's what hookers on Mars do. And it didn't register. I just, I got shy. I opened up my blouse and, you know, if you look up close, I mean, I was like tearing up because I was just so embarrassed, you know? So that was that. Um, I did it anyway. Um, the other really fun thing that I got to do a couple times afterward is getting shot. And when you get shot, they squib you up, which means they put these little packets of blood all over you. What was in my mouth hidden that, you know, when you get shot in the back, I had to bite it and open up my mouth and blood spew out. So it was good to be shot in the back. And um, someone has like a remote control offset that explodes these squibs all at once. These little packets, plastic packets of blood. So you see blood all, you know, spewing out. And it was one of those scenes, just like the one with Picard with the hot chocolate, we could only do it twice because they'd have to take that whole prosthetic piece off and put another one on, uh, you know, with the squibs and, and ruin it and explode it. I don't recall what ended up showing on the screen, but it, that was so fun. The funnest part was practicing, getting shot and go, ah, and then had mattresses and you just go, ah, and fall onto the mattress, you know, off camera. And I was like, this is so fun. I just loved it. Practicing getting shot over and over again and we're working with the special effects and stunt guys. You know, it was really nice. And this is more than once I had to deal with guns and stuff is they show you that they're real blanks. They open it up, they show you that they're blanks, but to still be careful because there's a push. You can actually get hurt if, if a gun is too close to you, that, that impact on the blank, you know, it's like a BB. So, um, you know, I didn't get hurt or anything like that, but it was, it was fun. I don't know. <laughs> it's fun to get shot. It was fun to get shot. <laughs> it, it was not the day I had diarrhea. So they did a lot of scenes where I'm laying face down, you know, and, and I, basically you're an extra that day where you're just dead, you know, facing down on a mattress, but I had to be there facing down. And it wasn't the mattress at the time. It was the actual floor. Um, so thank God I didn't have the squirms then. <laughs> So a few years later, after all of this, you decided to leave Hollywood and you kind of changed the trajectory of your career and you went to journalism. Uh, so why did you make that career shift? But yeah, I ended up uh, leaving acting, but acting kind of left me. After I got nominated for that Emmy, I got the chance to audition for everything under the sun, bigger roles and stuff, but I didn't book even one of them. I didn't work for an entire year. And the more I auditioned and got close and the more I got quote unquote rejected, the more I just my mindset couldn't handle it. I was young and not really balanced, I guess. I just took it to heart. You know, I kept trying to fix what was wrong. I was like, why wasn't I booking these? You know, ethnic was not in again at the time. It was, I was always auditioning against white girls and white girls were always getting it. it J-Lo hadn't come along yet. You know, it just it, she helped break the barrier in living color so that we started to see lead actresses um, who were ethnic 
work in bigger roles. Um, but at, at the time I was working through the 80s and early, very, very early 90s, that wouldn't happen. So after a year of not booking one thing after this Emmy nomination, my agents dropped me. And I was like, maybe I should go to college. <laughs> you know, I was like 30. And it was a fun run. Acting was a fun run. I, you know, was in the business from 18 to 30. And so I started to go to community college and I really liked essay writing. And before I know it, I started to evolve my talents into writing. And what I liked about being a journalist and I became a news reporter, I became an undercover investigative reporter, which means you're not going to see my byline on a lot of things because um, it was more like investigating and more like a spy. If I was checking into the hotel of the person I was following, I couldn't be traced back, you know, because my name was not known. I am, so it was kind of, that's how I operated to get bigger and bigger stories. And that was the way to make a lot more money. I made a whole lot more money uh, as a, an undercover investigative journalist than I did as an actor. So I did that for quite a while, um, broke a lot of big stories. Um, Again, you probably wouldn't see my name a lot unless I was working for People Magazine, the Miami Herald, or the Daily Mail. Um, then I would, I would be forced to take a byline. I'd have to put my name on those stories. But I could get more information and write bigger and better stories if my name wasn't attached, if I was kind of hidden. Then I could sneak around and get closer to my subject and get more information on them. Anyway, those were the days. Um, I traveled you know, to every state in the United States and kind of all around the world. Um, I ended my career right after I broke the Bill Cosby rape scandal in around September, October of, what was it, 2014. I did that completely on my own. Um, Hannibal Buress um, was doing a summer tour. Um, he's a comic and he, you know, he said, you know, the, the biggest, comic hypocrite is Bill Cosby. Google him and rape when you get home. And I picked up on that and realized this guy had settled a couple of big lawsuits, one in the 90s, you know, one in 2006. And I started to gather names of women who were testifying against them. And all of this was covered up, kind of, it just wasn't in the mainstream. And I started to interview Barbara Bowman and some of the other women on record, on camera, you know, on print, who lived through the horror with me. I just wrote about the horror, hor horrible examples of what they went through with these molestations and, and being drugged and raped over and over and over again. There were so many women that I knew it wasn't a conspiracy against Bill Cosby. Many of them were grandmothers and you know, all kinds of races and ethnicities and all around the country. So it wasn't like they all gathered up in Dallas and go, let's get Bill. You know, it wasn't a plot against him. It was a real deal. He started in the 70s and, you know, ended it in 2013, pretty much. So, I mean, he's in jail now. Um, I don't, you know, have anything personal against him, but I broke that Bill Cosby scandal and a couple of other big ones. And then after that, you know, I made enough money to pay off my house here in, in, you know, in Venice Beach, California. And I was like, why not not work? <laughs> why not, you know, just invest my money? And, and, you know, I've been, I've been in the mainstream of working, you know, eight to 16 hours a day since I was a teenager. So, that, you know, I ended up transitioning out of 
um, journalism into retirement where I can ride my motorcycle and read books and take naps. Yeah, I did want to follow up on you breaking the story about Bill Cosby because that was such a huge, huge thing in the news. Uh, and, you know, clearly this is one of those things that's helped this current wave of feminism that we have right now. Uh, it kind of led into the Me Too movement, the Speaking Out movement, all those kinds I of things. Um, but just, you know, let's just take it back a few steps to when that story first broke. And, you know, you said you're an investigative journalist, so oftentimes your name is hidden. In this case, your name is right out there in bold. Uh, so just those first few months when the story came out, what was it like for you as that reporter just to have your name there and have, you know, this giant story attached to it? Uh, well, there's always blowback. You know, um, there's all, there were a lot of people, close friends of mine, you know, who are African-American who thought it was a conspiracy to hurt Bill Cosby. It was a dead end because they, there, wasn't, there wasn't logic there for me to go, this woman didn't even know this woman. They live on opposite sides of the country, you know, opposite experiences other than the similar experience of being drugged, not knowing what happened, waking up and smelling semen and cigar smoke and Bill Cosby's cologne all over them, you know, <laughs> to be quite frank. So it's, it was tough. I got a lot of blowback. Um, I went on Dr. Phil. He gave me an entire segment on my own, which was really cool. Um, and we really got to break down the timeline. And there's just so many women from so many walks of life, from Playboy Bunnies all the way to to fans who saw him in a comedy show in Las Vegas, who he said, you know, I'll sign an autograph and take pictures right in front of their boyfriends and then said, here's the key to my room, come up and get the signed autograph later in a couple of hours. And they'd come up and he wouldn't be there. They'd open the, the, the door to his suite and there would be wine and food and you know, there'd be a call, a ring at in the hotel and they'd pick up and it would be Bill and said, you know, I'm, I'm delayed. I'm, I'm saying hi to some fans. Go ahead and have a glass of wine and have a bite and I'll be right there. And this happened so many times to so many different people who did not know each other. And by the, you know, by the time they woke up, it was the next day, they're either naked in bed or half dressed. Bill's nowhere to be found. But it's like something is dripping out of their lady parts. <laughs> it's, it was pretty horrifying and it was pretty graphic. And I was very lucky to have women confide in me and open up to me and trust me enough to expose themselves and know that I'm going to write the words exactly the way they want them. I'm not going to spin it. I'm, I'm going to do it with as much respect and dignity as I can give to such a horrific experience. But by, you know, by you, by I was telling by you coming forward, this is, this really helps. And it did blow up into the whole Me Too movement. And more and more folks got exposed, Harvey Weinstein and Epstein. And it, you know, that was the beginning of it. Um, and it was, it was a tough road uh, for me personally too. Um, I happen to have been a survivor of some of those experiences. So I think that's why I had a, a special skill set to go in and make a cold call to people, to a woman and say, hey, this is who I am. It happened to me. I know it happened to you. Let, would you be willing to talk about it? And I'll write it with you. We'll edit the story with you. We'll do it exactly the way you want it, with your words. Um, because 
the experience its time. And so I was lucky enough to do a dozen of those kinds of stories. Um, and it got, it, it elevated me for a quick second, but that really wasn't the goal. I did a lot of TV stuff around the world, segments on news stories and stuff, talking about it. Um, um, that's about that. That's about all I have to say on that. I think it's quite a lot. I mean, it's, it's a heck of a thing that happened. Uh, that's to put it mildly, I guess, but you know, I, I kind of wondered looking at some of the things in your career, like we didn't even discuss actually uh, on Baywatch, how you'd mentioned that you had to basically be stripped naked and be given a fake tan. Uh, I'm just curious, you know, looking at like a lot of the experiences you had in Hollywood, having to be a, a prostitute all the time, having to show yeah. off three boobs and total recall, just all these kind of very demeaning roles. Uh, how much do you think that played into your decision to kind of go towards this aspect of the investigative journalism and to start oh. talking about that? God, I never, that was, that's an amazing question, Matthew. Oh, thank wow. You. <laughs> you know, I never really put those together, but um, I mean, there's the level of, because of the way I looked, you know, it truly was the way I looked. Um, I was exploited in the sense where I wasn't going to get a, a, a meaningful role. They were always maids and prostitutes and hookers and drug addicts and people who were of color. And that was it. That was all that my agents could get me up for. Um, and my peers as well. Some of my peers went on to, to do, you know, lots of much, much better things. They hung in there and broke the color line. The color line got broken now where it's very uh, multiracial and multidimensional on, on camera now. But it wasn't back then. When I started to learn that I had a skill for writing, it was such a relief. It was like I could breathe because it didn't, didn't matter how I looked or how I sounded or how I smelled or anything about me personally, it mattered the, it mattered what, you know, the written word, it mattered what the word was on the page. And if I could do that and honor that correctly. So I wasn't into fiction, I was into nonfiction. And I did a lot of, I worked at the Miami Herald for years. I worked at People Magazine. I was undercover at the Inquirer and all of them, the star, all of those. Um, I didn't take a byline because I didn't want anyone to know I was doing that kind of work and I was making shitloads of money. Um, and I really learned how to be an investigative reporter because you, you've got a lot of data banks at your disposal. You, you know people's phone numbers where they live. You can get very, very close to a celebrity without them knowing it, especially because my name wasn't attached to anything. I mean, I followed Tom Cruise forever. Um, Britney Spears. I broke tons and tons and tons of stories on Britney Spears. I was the clearinghouse for everything Britney Spears when she was going through her meltdown, 2007 you know, to 2009. I was in her house a couple of times. Um, I would be able to get really, I was a celebrity journalist basically. Um, very, very close to my, my subjects um, because my name was not, was hidden. So if, if someone would see my name on a roster at a hotel they wouldn't put it together that I was a reporter and then I'd have to get kicked out. Or if I was at the Chateau Marmont, no one knew, they wouldn't attach me to who I was as a journalist so I could stay inches away from Lindsay Lohan and watch her do blow, you know, things like this. Um, I got to see a lot, I got to report a lot. Um, it was a great way to make a whole lot of money fast. Um, it, you know, in a weird way, I was exploited as an actor, and I guess I exploited a public figures to make a living now, you know, it bought me my house. Um, I, I, you know, people say I'm not proud of what I did. I don't, I didn't do anything sleazy, really. I didn't do anything illegal, re not really. <laughs> 
a little bit of gray there, a little, little touch of gray, um, but nothing that would get me handcuffed or anything like that. Um, you know, I still had my ethics and morals. The thing is, here's something important, I guess, is if you're going to be a public figure, if you're going to be uh, a celebrity, an actor, and you've got a soapbox and you've got a voice and you're making millions and millions of dollars to play cowboys and Indians, you can't pretend, you know, reporters are not going to follow you. You can't pretend that paparazzi aren't going to follow you. All those pictures you see in magazines of celebrities, they are, they 100% know that there's 10, 15 guys around them at all times, 100% of their lives, especially if they're A-listers like a Brad Pitt, a Jennifer Aniston, an Angelina Jolie, you know, people like that, um, uh, Justin Bieber. And they act natural, but often they're calling the press to let them know that, hey, I'm gonna be at the park playing with my kid. You know, we'll sue you if you give, if you print bad shots. So just print good shots. And they have working relationships with the paparazzi photo agencies. And they have working relationships with the celebrity magazines that some people don't know, but I'm not in the business anymore and no one can sue me for anything I'm saying. But there's no, there's no wool pulled over anybody's eyes. If you're a public figure, you, you're fair game. You're fair game to be reported on you know, good, bad, and ugly. If you're making that level of money as a public figure. Now their kids to me are off limits, you know, um, their love interests, um, even though there's often interest in their partners or their husbands or wives, you know, I, I try not to pursue them because they're not public figures. But if you're gonna put yourself out there, you're, you're fair game. It's just, it's just part of the uh, contract that you sign when you want to be that person and make that kind of money and and have that kind of airtime and influence on people, you know. I mean, this is such a big story that happened. It really did just change so much in this country. Uh, I mean, do, do, you, do you ever wonder if like this is your way of just kind of trying to protect others from what happened to you happening to them? Oh, totally. I mean, that and that's what I would say to the women who who had been raped by Bill Cosby and other people. Um, there were a couple of others. Um, that this kind of will help stop that karmic train as it was, you know, so that it m may not happen again. It might end this, this habitual and lo and behold, look what's happening. Now, some, some guys have been falsely accused and I feel really bad about that because it gives the Me Too movement a bad name, but there are a whole lot of people who um, got busted. Like I'm a massive fan of Louis CK. He got busted, he came out and went, I did it. I did it, I'm wrong, I'm gonna take a couple of years off, I'm gonna repent, anything I can do to fix this, this is true. And he was one of the first people to do that. And so was um, uh, Al Franken. And he had to step down from a really long, wonderful career as a Senator, but they copped to it. They said, my bad, kind of like Arnold Schwarzenegger doing that before he was elected governor. You know, it's always the cover up that's so much worse than the crime. But what, I mean, nowadays it's, it's women don't go into hotels and ho private hotel rooms to do auditions. You know, a lot of the bad guys are out of the business now. The casting couch, that casting couch doesn't exist anymore. You know, if, if you're in a wardrobe fitting, it's, it, you know, there's, they do it. So it's all above board and you can't get sued. You know, there's women with you just watching. I mean, it's, 
it's everything has changed now for the better. I mean, I'm not solely responsible by any means, but it was so cool to have that first little rock that started to roll that now has snowballed into a massive change in the industry to make it a little bit more decent for women and men. You know, I have a lot of male friends that were hit on, you know, harder even, even more bluntly. And that kind of stuff just isn't fair because it's someone taking their powerful position and you're going to get a job out of it. If you fulfill their sexual needs, that's that's so corrupt. So I'm glad it's out there and it's passing. I'm glad we got to talk about this here. I know folks listening who came, if they're thinking they're only going to hear Star Trek, clearly they haven't listened to Trek Untold before. Uh, but I think this is a pretty important topic. And uh, you know, just thank you for being so brave to actually cover this and to break that story. But uh, I guess on to a little more of a positive, happier note as well as we close out this episode today. You're right now involved in a charity organization called Drive-By Do-Gooders. And I wanted to talk to you about that. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what Drive-By Do-Gooders is? I came up with this little charity, um, you know, like drive-by shooting, you know, um, I, I live in LA and, um, you know, you can't throw a rock and, and not see a homeless person that could look like your brother, your mother, your relative, your grandfather. It's, it's in, in LA County proper. I think we have this year, what, 58,000 adult homeless people that are unsheltered. And I work uh, specifically in Skid Row on the outskirts of Skid Row that, that have 12,000 adults who live in 20 square blocks. And it's a permanent homeless encampment in downtown LA. And I've, I've always been kind of a do-gooder. Like I'm the one at a party who's shy, believe it or not. I don't, you know, it doesn't seem like I'm shy now, but you know, I'm the one who's cleaning up in the kitchen or trying to help. And um, I've always been um, service and charity oriented. So drive-by do-gooders just uh, kind of evolved organically and naturally where just it would be just me and I would be driving to an audition or driving to work or just driving anywhere. And I'd have a bottle of water and extra protein bar in my passenger seat. And if I had it, I'd give it. And if I didn't, I did, I wouldn't, you know, I didn't put too much pressure on myself. You know, I didn't make an illegal U-turn sometimes to help a person, but if it was meant to be, I'd hand it out. And I just noticed I was doing that more and more. And then one day I was asked to help with a buffet on a street in Skid Row called Gladys street and at the end of the buffet all these people are high-fiving themselves about how wonderful they were helping the poor and I was like it's that's not the way to do it you just do it from your heart and you don't really talk about it you know you don't make t-shirts about it and rave you know wave banners about how good you are it's just something you should do like recycling or taxes there are people who are less fortunate than than we are you know and everybody deserves water you know and everybody deserves a little bit of protein to think help them think straight and everybody deserves you know, wipes, like I make these baby wipes infused with rubbing alcohol, and I put them in little baggies called baths in a bag, because there's a very, very few toilets out in Skid Row, not one shower, and believe it or not, not one single water fountain. So after years and years of, of, of evolving this, I became a little nonprofit in 2015, and I called myself Drive-By Do-Gooders, and I I corral the teenage boys on my block to go out with me and we put, you know, 300 bottles of water in my old SUV and we make 200 baggies of baby wipes and socks or tarps. Or now these days we, we bring out masks and gloves and we roll down the outskirts of Skid Row where the elderly and disabled are because we can only feed a few hundred people or help a few hundred people and there's 12,000 out there. And we kind of roll down the street like an ice cream truck going, you know, water, string cheese, cleaning wipes, masks, gloves, socks. 
whatever we have. And our homeless friends who we've known for years and years come out of their tents and we just hand the stuff out from our cars. It's super safe. It's not like straight out of Compton. I've never seen a weapon down there. I've seen some fights. I've seen a whole lot of inebriated people, a lot of you know drugs. I've seen a lot of prostitution, which is kind of the underground economy that, that the police kind of let operate because it's kind of how people make money. Um, but no one, there's, you know, no one's harming each other. They, they like to not draw attention to themselves. Each street is like their own tribe. You know, your wall-to-wall tarps and tents. And these people have settled in. It's the permanent homeless encampment, you know, right here, seven miles away from million-dollar homes, multi-million-dollar homes. We've got abject third-world poverty, people who don't have a bathroom. You know what, you know, their bathroom is? A bucket. They have those Home Depot buckets behind their tents where they squat and do their business. So, you know, one thing that no charity that I know of does is bring out these body wipes and they go crazy for them because it cleans themselves, it cleans them, their tents, it washes their body. And especially, you know, in this time of COVID, you know, it might help sanitize some stuff because we use 75% alcohol in these baby wipes. And I, I don't know, it's so enjoyable. I, I rarely talk about it. It's just something I do. I collect four bucks a month from my friends and it's enough to kind of fuel the SUV and go to Costco and get all the water and stuff like this. And, you know, as much as I don't want to do it sometimes, I do it every week. Because by the time I've rolled out there and I've gone down my first block, the thank yous and the bless yous and, you know, what you get back just feels 10 times more than what you give. You know, these people are so grateful and there's so, so little out there. And I can't really solve the homeless problem, but, you know, I kind of can fill in the gaps where other service providers leave off, you know. On, on Sundays, some religious institutions come out and they do buffets or they'll hand out blankets or stuff along with Bibles and stuff, but I've got like no agenda. It's just pure giving and there's no overhead. It's just me and cute teenage boys who go to Venice High who just pack up the car, roll out there. And by the time we've come home to the cushy, you know, green tree-lined suburbs, it's like, wow. You know, we really feel that we made a little bit of a difference. And the, the fact that we've gone out there every single week since 2013, you know, it, it's, we're so consistent. You know, we were a consistent presence out there. And we really get to know these folks and each person has a different story. So if you really can't uh, stereotype homelessness. It's not, oh, they're all drug addicts or, oh, oh they're all just want to live off the public dime. I mean, it's, just, it's so complicated. My uh, little brother, who's given me permission to talk about him, was homeless due to uh, a meth addiction and he lived on Venice Beach and he was mugged and rolled over and beaten up and he became very sick and he was out there for a long, long time. You know, and then one day I just finished doing a story about Drew Barrymore's half sister who killed herself. She had eight years of sobriety and she started to get on diet pills. And before I know it, she was all the way back on Oxycontin and she died in her car of an overdose. And I just finished talking to her mother and did a long interview and I hung up the phone. I sent in my copy and I went, you know, my brother's right down the street in Venice and I try to help him and he doesn't want help. 
maybe I should just give it one last try. I had to. So I roll out there, I double park in an alley and I tell the guy, please watch my car that I'm going to save my brother. <laughs> and I went out there and I just kind of prayed, you know, Venice Beach is big. So I just hit Brooks and the sand and I went, please guide me, where is he? And I swear to you, this is true, Matthew. It was like a movie. I turn and I see this mound and I see these two palm trees, you know, on the beach. And my, I see someone, it was my brother. I see the stat, this like figure of my brother, like a, like a shadow of my brother, you know, just a thinner, older, grayer. And I scream out, Corey. And he, he turns and I go, Corey, is that you? He goes, Licia. And I was like something out of the friggin' movies. I, we just start like running towards each other and I hugged him and I held him and he was ready to come, he was ready. You know, I pull up my car and by the time I got him into a rehab, he was already using three syllable words. He's now recovered seven years of completely clean and sober. He's got a full-time job. He's a member of society. He's amazingly good looking. He's a really good musician. You know, I didn't necessarily save my brother, but you know, sometimes 10 fingers reach out to try to help somebody pull them out of homelessness. And they just need to take one finger and grab onto it and come, come out of that situation. And if we can do anything like that with drive-by do-gooders, just giving out water and wipes and masks and tarps, you know, we want to be able to do that. You know, it's, it's good to be, you know, I'm blessed, man. I've got a house. I've got dogs. I've got motorcycles. I've got friends. I've got my health. You know, I live in beautiful LA, um, you know, to give back just that little much feels like nothing. You know, I, I feel like I should give so much more back. I don't know if this inspires anybody, but just put a bottle of water in your passenger seat or protein bar and don't be afraid. You know, it, there's there's this stigma about homeless people. Just pull up, roll down the window and go, hey, you want this protein bar? Or you want this ball of socks? It's used, but it's clean. And you you won't believe it. They'll always say yes. And they'll always thank you. And you'll walk away going, I just did a tiny little bit of good, man. Yeah, it's very altruistic, and I'm glad that you guys are doing this out there. You're making a difference for sure. You know, I'm, I'm here in New York, and we have similar uh, problems with finding housing for the homeless, but I went to L.A. last year, in fact, last summer, and I remember taking an Uber. Uh, I can't remember exactly what parts I was going through, but uh, I know it was from basically like one part of L.A. into another part that's closer, like where a lot of the bigger theaters are, and I just remember seeing just tent city, just so many tents, and I was like, this is just, you know, it's similar to what we have here, but so much worse in other ways. So thank you for making a difference. And, uh, you know, today for our listeners out there who want to support Drive-By Do-Gooders, how can they do that? Oh my God, thank you for saying that. All right, so it's drivebydogooders.org. You know, think of drive-by and think of me, a do-gooder, all one word, drivebydogooders.org. And you'll see a little video of us driving around doing our thing. And, you know, you can toss a few pennies in a month and become a, you know, a, a regular subscriber. And we're always on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, drive-by do-gooders, it's easy to find. I post every week or twice a week, you know, um, of what we're doing out there. All the money goes directly into the bellies and the mouths of, the, of those who need it the most. I don't operate on any overhead and I don't think there's any charity out there that's like that. I don't have stationary, I don't give myself a salary, I don't give myself a manicure. All I do is put gas in the car, you know, so every, every dime I get goes to buying stuff and giving it, buying stuff and giving it. So it's drivebydogooders.org. 
I'd love for you guys to be drive by do-gooders and you can start giving and doing this just wherever you are. You know, just put an extra sandwich and extra socks, water, hand it out the car window. That's it. You're, you're, you're a drive by do-gooder and you won't believe how good it feels, you know, and it's so easy. So Alicia, last question today for you. What is the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? Getting to talk to people like you, Matthew. Oh, you. That's true. Part of it is that the universe continues and continues with the fans and, and people who know so much more about the canon of Star Trek and meeting people at the conventions and, and getting fan mail and signing, you know, stills from the stuff I've done. And I don't know, it just it's something that keeps living on and on. And you know what? All of the gadgets and ta technology and stuff that we have now is all invented by Gene Roddenberry and the people who continue to write this stuff way back, starting in the 60s. And now it's all true. I mean, it's crazy. You know, one, one thing about being part of that Star Trek universe is that it is a universe. You know, we just found out that there's a universe that has nine habitable planets on it. And we were already doing that in Star Trek in, in, and in all of its formats, you know, going to other planets with people on them. And now that can actually be 100% true, we found out. Anyway, that's what I love about it. It's really kind of the human aspect, you know, meeting people like you, Matthew. The nicest thing anyone said to me all day and probably the rest of my life. So thank you for that, Alicia. I appreciate it. And yeah, we appreciate you today so much for being on here to talk about Star Trek and talk about everything else you've been doing with yourself. Uh, you know, it, this has definitely been one of the most diverse interviews I think we've had on the show. And, uh, you know, it's definitely a little bit out of the normal from what we typically talk about, but I think you, you've covered some pretty important things that are absolutely worth spotlighting. So thank you for everything you did on screen. And of course, with Drive by Do-Gooders and your journalism career. I mean, yeah, I mean, I hope you're proud of yourself too. You've done a heck of a lot for the world. Oh, thank you so much. You know, give a ring anytime. Love to talk to you again. All right. Well, thank you so much, Lisa. And for folks out there who want to support Drive by Do-Gooders, of course, we're going to have a link in the show notes. So make sure you guys click on that. Uh, so yeah, Lisa, again, thank you so much. Have a great day. Bye. And that was our chat with Lisa Naff, who I want to thank for being so willing to discuss so many topics that are very, very unusual from what we normally do here. I want to add to that also that I think Lysia is one of the bravest and strongest people I've spoken to on this show, and again, no matter what your opinion may be of the outcome of some of her journalistic endeavors, I hope you can respect what she did and why she did it. For my money, Lysia is an absolute badass, and I have a lot of respect for what she's accomplished and for what she's done to help so many other people out there. And once again, if you'd like to check out her charity organization, Drive by Do-Gooders, we're going to have links to that in the show notes so you can learn more about them and how to support them. In the Star Trek franchise, there haven't been a ton of journalists represented on screen. There have been a few episodes where the crew has maybe traveled to the past and ran into a few reporters, or in the DS9 episode Far Beyond the Stars, the entire ops crew became writers, but not really for the news. But as for times that were more contemporary to what was happening in Star Trek shows, the list is very, very tiny. There were a handful of reporters at the beginning of Star Trek Generations, and a journalist interviewed Jean-Luc Picard in the first episode of the first season of Star Trek Picard, but a more well-known one would be the one that appeared on Star Trek Enterprise, when Mayweather once dated a reporter named Gannett Brooks, played by Johanna Watts, whose first name was a direct homage to the Gannett Company, one of the largest news services in the U.S. But the most well-known journalist in all of Star Trek history would have to be Jake Sisko, who stayed on board the station when the Dominion occupied Deep Space Nine and reclaimed it as Tarek Nor for that brief period. And of course, we all know that following that, Jake would go on to have quite a prolific writing career as seen in The Visitor, but that's a story for another day. And lastly, we can't forget one other notable journalist in Star Trek history, and that would be Neelix and his program, Briefings with Neelix. 
And while he did break one pretty big story, I think it's probably a good thing that he went back to cooking after that story. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Trek Untold. If you aren't already, please make sure you're following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Trek Untold. And if you'd like to watch the video version of this podcast when available, make sure to check out youtube.com slash nerdnews today. And don't forget you can also check out teespring.com slash stores slash trekuntold. Check out all the Trek Untold merchandise we have, or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash trekuntold. Any contribution you can make helps keep this ship running at optimum power. But even just listening to the show and telling your friends about it does a pretty big thing for us too. So please leave a rating and review if you're listening to this in the audio form, or give the video on YouTube a thumbs up and sub to the channel. There's no wrong way to help Trek Untold out, so whether you're just dropping a review, giving us ratings, or if you're able to offer us any support monetarily, we thank you so much for doing that. And we also thank you for again choosing to listen to Trek Untold. Once again, thank you to our sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions. If you'd like to send us some feedback, suggest a guest, or ask to be booked as a guest on this show, or provide a sponsorship opportunity at Trek Untold, please email me at trekuntold at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you and hear your thoughts on what you thought about this week's episode and our guest. I'm Matthew Kaplowitz, this has been Trek Untold, and until next time, fortune favors the bold. <laughs>